Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios, Life Radio, Chico 104.5 and AM 930. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but I have been a photographer for over 30 years. And if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you can say I preached the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as the program, What the Cross Means to Me, by Harvest House Publishers. Each week, we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's essay is Because of the Cross by Bonnie Keene, who is an author, speaker, recording artist. Bonnie Keene has emerged as one of the most compelling singer-songwriters of this generation, recipient of three Dove Awards, five Grammy nominations, and an Emmy nomination for her work as a recording artist. And with that, let's begin the essay because of the cross. Although our churches are often decorated with beautiful, ornate crosses, the essence of what the cross means is found in its ugliness. There he hung, drenched in sweat, the joints of his body agonizingly pulling apart, grasping for breath, and finally giving up his life for mine. It was God's unimaginable love that kept Jesus nailed to that rough-hewn, splintered wood for the sake of this fallen world. He suffered as one of us with bones and sinews and muscles that strained and ached. He felt the loneliness of abandonment and the hurt of betrayal, and yet his love reached out to us. What kind of love is this? It is a love beyond all reason beyond anything we could ever desire. His love reached out to us. It reaches out to us still. The message of the cross cries out from the cross and is the message of hope. Death has been conquered. I am forgiven and free. I can face tomorrow. Because of his great love on that blood-soaked, sin-splattered wood, I know I am loved beyond measure, beyond failure beyond disease, beyond all unanswerable questions. My only proper response can be trust. In my darkest moments, in my deepest pain, there lives in me and with me the one who died for me, on whose hand I can hold on to even when life seems to be tumbling down all around me like a house of cards. Because of the cross, I live and have hope. That ends the essay, Because of the Cross, 
by Bonnie Keen, submitted and included in What the Cross Means to Me book. There is a poem preceding this essay by William Penn, which says, No pain, no palm, no thorns, no throne, no gall, no glory, no cross, no crown. And there is a cross image accompanying this essay, which is the vigilance, which is another surreal image in the cross collection. It shows a white reflected cross against a sky of compelling gradation. The foreground is nothing but rocks, the kind of gray rocks that look like they just got pulled from deep in the ground, because they were. The kind of rocky landscape that you would expect to see at Golgotha. This image was after the ground was broken to build a school campus. Now, my collection actually has three phases to it. Yes, there's a pre and post groundbreaking segments. However, the third is that long period after the construction started and soon before the campus was completed, the school had moved the cross to its second location, and that is where this image was captured from. A second location versus its final location. Because soon after they opened up the campus, they moved the cross from a second location to its final location on the north side of the football field. But wait, two years ago I visited that cross again and spent an hour or so shooting that cross just on the other side of the track field, which means I shot it in its final location. So that would mean that there's four phases to it. There's pre-construction, post-groundbreaking, the second location, and the final location. The one big bummer about the second location is that the orientation of the crossbars now face north-south instead of east-west, as it had been for years. Why is that important or relevant? Because the sun always sets in the west and rises in the east, so I no longer could get the sun in the composition, just the side sky. That said, it is not the sky in this particular image that makes the picture surreal, even though it has this cool gradient thing going on. As I mentioned, I captured this about a half hour or 45 minutes after sunset, so the top portion of the image is fairly dark, and it gradually gets lighter and lighter as you view down till the light starts to take on hues of blue, and then light blue, and then pink, and then amber. No, the gradation is not the thing that many have reported back to me that they said was a little disconcerting. It was that there seems to be a rope hanging from it, and the end of the rope is in the appearance of a hangman's noose hanging off the cross. No, I did not put it there, and no, I did not capture the cross that night because of it. No, I just happened to have made time to come up and spend time with the cross and shoot, and I didn't even think of how others might interpret it when shooting it or by including it in the book. How did it get there? Well, when they moved the cross, they used a crane, which looks like the noose was for the, the circle part of the crane to get underneath it and hook onto it, to latch onto it and move it to its new location. And it seems that the workers simply forgot and left the rope hanging. And why the reason for the name, the vigilance? Well... As I mentioned, I didn't think of how others might interpret it when I included it in the book. But, reflecting upon it now, there is something about vigilante justice, the kind you see in spaghetti westerns. That kind of popped into my head. And 
As I mentioned in the last episode, number 31, The Mystery of the Cross, the sacrifice Jesus allowed protects us, those who believe, from the wrath of God. But the word vigilance has many varying definitions and applications. It is a noun that is defined as the action or state of keeping careful watch for or about. One is like the sheriff or cop that is constantly aware and watchful to observe someone breaking the law and to help a victim. And, or, it could mean that they are persistently pursuing a fugitive. But for me, it has a similar but opposite application. In Isaiah 53, 2, it says, God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. The New Living Translation said, God looks down from heaven at the entire human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. The Bible says that God wills that none should perish, meaning none should end up in hell. And Jesus gave it his all, even the horrific and brutal death on the cross, to allow someone, anyone, the bridge to cross over from death to life. Jesus also gave us the Holy Spirit, who, in the name of this image, is ever vigilant, seeking and prompting those who turn from their misery of sin to the joy that comes from dwelling with Christ their Savior. Regarding today's devotional, this is the very last essay in the book, What the Cross Means to Me. However, this is not the last devotional in the What the Cross Means to Me devotional series. One reason is that there is an excerpt from The Imitation of Christ preceding this last essay, and I will save the last devotional or that excerpt next week. But I do find it appropriate that this essay wraps up the entire premise of the devotional series and the book in that it is all because of the cross. Sure, it was a miracle that Jesus came into this world through a virgin birth, and the entire story of Gabriel's encounters with Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, and Zechariah is amazing. And the dichotomy of the son of the creator of the universe and king of the Jews being born in a cattle stall is so moving and heart-rending. And yes, there's a lot to learn, not just from the Magi, the royal scientists from the East coming to pay homage, but also how the lowly shepherds were invited to pay their respects as well. And yet, this was just a beginning as a newborn baby cannot fulfill its mission just by being born. Jesus would have to grow up start his ministry, call disciples, heal the sick, cast out demons, challenge the religious leaders, raise from the dead, and more. Still, all of this was just a part of his mission. The real mission coming into fruition was the symbolism of the entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, the initiation of the Lord's Supper, the passion of the Garden of Gethsemane, the shame, beating, mocking, spitting, whipping, torturing, and the crown of thorns was still not the realization of the mission, although it's getting very close. No, all of it from the time of the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary was leading to the point where the Romans would drive the stakes into his wrists and feet. And yet, that was still not the end of the mission. I agree, it was significant, and we can learn so much by meditating on it when Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or, today, you will be with me in paradise. Or, 
Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple whom he loved, he said, Behold your mother. Or when he said, I thirst. And all the while, all the sins of all the humans across all of time and into the future was placed in and on Jesus, leading up to his beloved father decoupling and completely abandoning him. Leading up to when Jesus said what most people feel is the true fulfillment. Several hours later, when Jesus uttered the phrase, it is finished. And yet, while his lifeless body still hung on the cross, the covert mission of Jesus was just barely being able to be realized. Why? Because Jesus went into the realm of Lucifer and retrieved the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Now we have a clear focus on the plan of God. And yet, Jesus was not done. He rose from the grave with intra-atomic power, appearing and ministering to disciples and many other Jews in the greater Jerusalem area. And yet, those 40 days led up to a final commission and ascension into the heavens. Now we can look back and have an understanding of God's desire to restore a right relationship with him through the death and resurrection of his beloved son. Of course, the resurrection, ministry, and ascension could not have happened without the cross happening first. Like the poem that we just read preceding this essay, William Penn says, No thorns, no throne, no cross, no crown. The crown? Yes, because even past the ascension, the mission of Jesus continues at the right hand of the throne of God, as he will return to earth someday. The point is, the whole plan of the gospel from the Garden of Eden, the miracle of the nativity, the ministry of Jesus, and his passion, was all leading to the cross. And everything after, the resurrection, the ministry of his resurrected body, the ascension, his second coming, could only have happened because of the cross. And we have gotten through the apropos title of this week's essay encapsulating the entire story of salvation for humankind, which is, it is all because of the cross. I love how Bonnie starts off the essay. Although our churches are often decorated with beautiful, ornate crosses, the essence of what the cross means is found in its ugliness. Did you catch that? I mentioned earlier that I felt that This last essay of the book encapsulates the theme of the book, and this first sentence validates that perception. Addressing and answering the main question of the entire book, what does the cross mean to you? I spoke fairly deeply in one episode about how some crucifixions, meaning not an empty cross, but the Corpus Christi, a cross with the body of Christ on it, or even paintings of it, show a fairly intact and attractive Jesus hanging on the cross with a little blood on his forehead from the crowns, some blood on his hands and wrists, sometimes some on his knees from the Via Dolorosa, and of course his wrists, his feet, and on his side where the spear pierced them. But I've yet to see a crucifixion where the artist tries to fully impart the look of the crucified Christ that we read about in biblical accounts. I suspect that the art would not be very sellable. It would be very disconcerting, if you can picture it, having something like that on someone's wall. Bonnie tried to convey a little bit of it when she said, there he hung, drenched in sweat, 
the joints of his body agonizingly pulling apart, grasping for breath. But the accounts in the Gospels paint a more horrific and violent set of circumstances Jesus had to live through. The shame of being spit upon by the Jews, and then even more shameful by the Gentile Romans. Then to have those Romans strike his head and body with a rod over and over and over again. Then blindfolding him, being hit with fists. Then having his beard literally pulled out. And all of that just before cramming a crown of thorns into his cranium. And then they whipped Jesus with a whip that had hooked and serrated metal tips so that when they pulled it out to be ready for the next whipping, it pulled out pieces of his skin muscles, and sometimes tendons mixed with pieces of bone. This was not just applied to his back. The whip was designed to also reach around the front of his chest, legs, and groin area. And how he survived that is incredible to me. And yet, that was just the end of one phase, as phase two was for Jesus to carry the wooden cross, estimated to be well over 100 pounds, close to 200 pounds, and carry it up what we call the long Via de la Rosa path. Fortunately, Jesus didn't have to finish the full trek as Joseph of Cyrene finished the carrying of the cross to the hill called the Place of the Skull, a.k.a. Golgotha. The point is, it says in Isaiah 52.14 that many were horrified by the sight of him. He was so disfigured that he no longer looked like a man. So not only was he beat and tortured to the point of not being able to be recognized as Jesus, he was not even recognizable as a human. Your imagination, nor mine, can truly fathom what he must have looked like or really went through. And yet, I contend that everything I just described was not the worst of it. What do I mean? Well, Jesus was born for a purpose and a plan. In John 1.14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Moreover, it says in John 1, it infers that the two of them were together from the very creation of the universe when it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you have any doubt, you can quote Jesus himself, who said in John 17:5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Colossians 1.15 claims that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And we can quote God on this as well when he, in Mark 5.48, said, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. All of this makes sense if you think about it. If God overshadowed Mary as his father... And we know that an offspring takes on the blood type of the father. And Moses taught us that that the Lord told him that the life, the life force is in the blood. Then God, the father, was in the cellular makeup of Jesus. In John 14.10, Jesus teaches on this when he said, Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. But the father who dwells in me does his work. The whole point I'm making by reading these scriptures is wrapped up in Colossians 2.9. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Hmm. 
As I alluded to, the connection was more than any of us humans can commune with God. In the case of Jesus, God himself communed with Jesus from the inside out. They were intertwined at the molecular level as well as the spiritual level. So what does this mean? Why did I go through all these scriptures and what point am I making? I want you to fully understand how beloved Jesus was to the Father and how much Jesus relied on the communion with his God and Father. It is almost impossible for any of us to fully understand the symbiotic nature of Jesus, who was, and yes, fully God and fully man. And my point is, as we move into phase three, which is after all the beatings, even torture, and then nailing the body to the wooden cross, suspending his body in the air, feeling the real effect of gravity trying to pull your body through the stakes. Yes, through all that, the real pain began. And all that is just a part of his covert mission because Jesus was to be cursed by the very father responsible for his miraculous virgin birth. It's hard to get our heads around it. It's hard for me to understand the words of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, that describes the ministry of the suffering Christ and tells us that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Can you understand that? Somehow the father took pleasure in bruising the son when he set before him in that awful cup of divine wrath. How could the father be pleased by bruising the son were it not for his eternal purpose through that bruising to restore us as his children? But there is the curse motif that seems utterly foreign to us, particularly in this time in history. When we speak today of the idea of curse, what do we think of? We think of perhaps a voodoo witch doctor or an occultist, a Satanist, or a powerful medium, ones that can send you know, incantations, chants, and curses on someone else. But the very word curse in our culture suggests some kind of superstition. But in biblical categories, there's nothing superstition about it. It's more about being shamed to the core. If you really want to understand what it meant to a Jew to be cursed, I think the simplest way to look at it is famous Hebrew benediction in the Old Testament, Numbers 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But my point here is not to explain the blessing of God, but it's polar opposite. It's antithesis, which again can be seen in vivid contrast to the benediction. The supreme malediction would read something like this. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back on you and remove his peace from you forever. When on the cross, not only was the Father's justice satisfied by the atoning work of the Son, but in bearing our sins, the Lamb of God removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. He did it by being cursed. In Galatians 3.13, it states, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He who is the incarnation of the glory of God became the very incarnation of the divine curse. Wow. And more than just a curse, to place all the sins of the world in and on the body of Jesus on the cross. As sickening as that must have been for Jesus to experience all the physical, spiritual, and emotional pain of all the victims, as well as 
having to tap into the twisted thinking of all those offenders. No, my whole point is Jesus survived the physical torture and the spiritual torture, taking into himself all the evil of all time. But that at a certain point, the holy God of creation, who could not abide or cohabitate with sin, had to completely decouple the connection with his son Jesus. If I am correct with my previous prognostication, then God had to sever the connection at the very cellular level in Jesus. The umbilical symbiosis was ripped apart, and Jesus, for the first time in his life, felt utterly alone. For all the things that Jesus felt by being a human, hunger, thirst, tiredness, pain, joy, grief, righteousness, and even righteous anger, he never felt something like this. And as a human in his weakest point, being tortured and hung on a cross, Jesus felt complete abandonment from his Father. A separation and so harsh and so deep that I contend it literally broke his heart. I am not the first to suggest this by any stretch. Many biblical commentators and scholars have postulated that Jesus actually died of a broken heart. Remember, the Romans designed crucifixion to be one of the most painful yet slowest way to die, the most slowest way to execute a criminal, and yet the Romans were surprised at how fast Jesus died. The beauty of the gospel, as Bonnie wrote in her essay, was all of this ugliness, meaning the horror of his passion and abandonment Jesus felt is actually a source of encouragement for us. No matter what we, as frail humans, go through, including feeling totally abandoned, we now know that Jesus knows intimately what we feel and how it feels. And more than sympathy, Jesus empathetically goes far beyond that and allowed himself to be sacrificed for the sins and offense that caused our pain. And if we are to be honest, we have also been an offender and have offended and hurt others, even to the point of owing a debt for our sins. Sins that we will not have to pay if we believe and accept the salvation afforded by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Remember, being cursed and abandoned by God was not the fruition of his covert mission. It was the very end of the beginning of the accomplishment of the mission. Jesus had to be counted as a sinner, evil and cursed, as the entry fee to enter the kingdom of Lucifer. And good news, returning with the keys to death, hell, and the grave. As Bonnie put it in her essay, the message of the cross is hope. Death has been conquered. Not only am I forgiven and free, but the ones I loved intimately, like my mom and my wife Verna, did not really die when they passed away. They are alive in Christ, and I will be alive in Christ as well, meaning we will be reunited. And I love how Bonnie ends her essay, and as a result, how this book ends. She asks, what is the proper response to such sacrifice, love, and joy provided by Jesus? And her answer, it is to trust. I agree. And I contend that if you really believe the good news of the gospel, then there is no room for doubt. For those of you who listen to this devotional series, I often say that for the true believer, the realization is that the worst case scenario that we can encounter in life will be the best case outcome for those living in God's perfect will. This is the hope that transcends understanding and is the meaning of the cross. As Bonnie says in her last sentence, because of the cross, 
I live and have my hope. If you are a Christian, have you been living in this hope? If not, I suggest you meditate on the mystery of the cross and how everything Jesus did was to pave the way to eternal joy with his Father in both heaven and here on earth. Why? Because it removes doubt, fear, and pain and provides the faith needed to endure every trial and to go through whatever you may be called to for the kingdom of God. Knowing that the truth and joy of the gospel is that you are a forgiven and free person. Go and share that joy with others today. If you are not a Christian, you have yet to accept the incredible sacrifice Jesus made for you, then I suggest you read and meditate on what Jesus did for you. Read the crucifixion accounts and consider asking God to refine your soul and heal your heart. Ask Jesus to walk with you and fill you with his love and joy today. And with that, go in grace, and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me devotional program, heard every week on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, like this essay's image, The Vigilance, along with my other versepirations, then check out Magic Cross on Instagram. And if your church, youth group, or school would like to learn how to fundraise through the Magic Cross products, hear other cross podcasts, or read further meditative musings on the cross through my blog, then log on to magicross.com. That is M-A-J-I-C-R-O-S-S.com. 